Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People resolve the tension of diversity either by clinging to fundamentalism or by embracing relativism. Unfortunately, both approaches share a desire to be right, to have the right ideas, to associate with the right people, to know who is clean and who is unclean. The relativist, like the fundamentalist, is fine with everyone so long as everyone agrees with them that everything is relative. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul admonishes his disciples to separate righteousness and lawlessness, but also warns the church that when God says be separate, or don't touch what is unclean, he is not talking about people who disagree with you. Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 130 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. This is a gift. It is open to you. It is not being imposed on you. We are being honest with you. This is what we have placed our trust in, we being the apostolic we. And I'm going to repeat again when he says our heart, he's saying our mind, our thoughts, our reason is open to you. So we're teaching you openly all the things that come along with this teaching. And I think it's significant that he says to you, O Corinthians, he's speaking directly to the citizens of this city. When you say, O Minnesotans, you evoke something about being from Minnesota, whatever religion you are, there's something about cold weather and 10,000 lakes. Being part of Corinth has meaning. This is an important Roman city that has a significant history. And so he's speaking to them in this context. And there's something insidious about this verse when taken in parallel with the gospel narratives and the account of the trial of Jesus Christ. Because Christ says the same thing in the gospel that Paul says here. I spoke openly in your synagogues. Now, I understand that the Corinthians aren't going to put Paul on trial and execute him. But this is literature, and these are metaphors. So there is an edge to this claim that I have spoken openly, and I've hidden nothing from you. I've spoken plainly in your community. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to deny me? Are you going to judge me? Are you going to wash your hands when I'm executed? You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Again, you have freedom in the gospel, freedom in Jesus Christ. It's not the freedom to abuse your neighbor. 
It's the freedom to live with an attitude of thanksgiving. You received the gospel from us, but not so you could be a slave to us, so that you could be a slave to the gospel. Now, I'm the one who gave you the gospel. I'm the one who knows the gospel. I'm the teacher here. And I can tell you, eh, you're being consistent. You're being inconsistent with the gospel. Now, does this mean that you are then bound to me? No, it means you're bound to the gospel. Ultimately, it's between you and God. I can't force you. I can't force you. I'm not the one giving you your final grade. But I'm telling you this. You know, my kids have to take standardized tests. And they have teachers who teach them. Those teachers aren't grading those tests. Those teachers aren't writing those tests. But they know what the heck they're talking about. So you better listen to the teacher, even though the test is with somebody else, because they know what they're doing. Ultimately, your score is not between you and your teacher. Your score is between you and whoever's grading the standard exam. What he's saying is, it's between you and God. Once you put yourself under the gospel, you've put yourself under God. You know what happened to Jesus. I explained it to you. So when you accepted it, you accepted it. All I could do is say whether you're on the path or you're off the path. When Peter wants to fight against the soldiers who are going to take Jesus away, this is the normal implications of what we're doing. Yeah. Peter, I knew this was coming. And not because I knew this was coming in a woo-woo way like I can predict the future. It's normal. When you speak against the empire long enough, the empire comes to get you. That's how it works. And so when you follow the gospel, there are implications, not always pleasant ones. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So I'm being honest with you. I've laid everything before you. I've exposed myself to you as I am exposed before God, as he said in the previous chapter and the chapter before that. Not in order that you could judge me, but so that you could learn from me. So open your mind and learn. Little children enter the kingdom first because they are totally dependent on their parents. When you scold a young child, it comes back to the parent that scolds it for nurturing. When you give instruction to a child, it's open to your instruction. Even when the child doesn't like what the parent is saying, the child is easily formed by the parent's instruction. And this is what Paul is asking of his disciples, to be open, to be willing to be formed, to be willing to stay with your father, the apostle Paul, even when it's uncomfortable, to stay with your parent, Scripture, to be consistent and faithful in the doing of the instruction of Scripture, even when it's difficult. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. And in chapters 4 and 5, we saw that this is part of Paul's teaching. See how I'm being persecuted, yet my teaching is not changing? Notice how no matter what is happening to me, I'm consistent with the gospel? Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. This is a very interesting verse because it's obviously hearkening back to the commandment to come out from among them and be separate. But what's interesting is it's being addressed to Romans. At this time in history, the majority of people lived in tribal societies. They did not live in cities. You know, during the Hellenistic and Roman times, it became easy to go and move out of the tribe and live in the city. There were new roads that were established that made travel throughout the empire safe and easy and cheap. So a lot of people now all of a sudden could move. I imagine that Corinth is then full of new arrivals 
from the country. Now they live in a city, and it's a very different lifestyle because in the country, the family, the tribe, you know, under the Pachafamilias, is all interdependent on each other. You've only known these people your entire life, and everybody completely depends on everyone else for their own survival. You come to the city, you may or may not know the people. This is the first time you may have met strangers, actually. And now you're having to create a life and survive among strangers. So all of a sudden, you have to depend on people you just met. It's exactly the opposite of what we have now. Where I live in the suburbs, I don't know any of my neighbors. And there's always a turnover, someone selling a house, buying a house, and there are always new people. And this, because I'm so immersed in Hosea, makes me think of the land who so easily harlots herself to whoever will give her whatever she wants. And even one person will give her what she wants. And the Lord has to say, by the way, even when you think you got it from him, it was still from me. It was always from me. I'm the only one who gives. And so coupling yourself with an unbeliever should not be understood in the narrow, moralistic way that people teach, you know, a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. What it's saying is you need to remain within the tribe, but he's saying tribe in the sense of the church, this new tribe that Paul is forging through the gospel. Yes, you're in the city. Yes, you come from different families. Yes, you have different traditions. Yes, some are circumcised and some don't. Some eat this and some don't eat that. Some celebrate this day, some celebrate that day. This is not what matters. What matters is be with those who trust in God and God alone. This is your tribe. These are your people. This is applicable to Americans, although the American experience historically is different. Lots of people draw comparisons between Americans and Romans. I certainly did in my commentary on Galatians because there are obvious parallels. In particular, the transition to individualism and the embrace of Hellenism and what that means for relationships, for society. So... The crisis that's happening in Roman culture is also the crisis that's happening in American culture. And in this sense, in a suburb like yours where everyone's an individual and people only care about their own lives and people are moving in and out and not forming communities, Paul is offering us a way to form a community in the gospel in which everyone is what they are in the city, in the urban setting, but they are still bound to the same rules that govern how we relate to each other and take care of each other. It is possible to live in a city, in a big city, that's diverse and multilingual and cosmopolitan. In fact, our own tradition in the Middle East, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, is a city religion. So it's possible. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Again, it's easy to assume that Paul is saying you shouldn't mix with non-Christians. But that is not what he is saying. That is what his opponents in Galatians are saying. He is saying that you can be in the city, you can be in the world, you can have relationships with these people, but you are not held accountable to the same governing principles as these people. Exactly. It's about the governing principles. He's not saying don't be buddies with someone who's not a Christian. Don't be married to someone who's not a Christian. Because Christ is not marrying Belial. Christ is not wondering whether to be a buddy with Belial. What they are are separate teachings. It's interesting. It's not Jesus. It's Christ. What does the Messiah 
have to do with Belial, this demon, right? It's because each one has a teaching. And when we look at Luke, it's not the guy, Jesus, fighting against the guy, the devil. It's one way of teaching with another way of teaching. It's one teaching of individualism. You get whatever you want because you're the most powerful guy. And Jesus, who says, no, my mission here is to serve. I will only serve. I won't take any power. The teachings don't have anything in common. You have to make a choice between one teaching and the other. You can't marry the two teachings. You can't say, I am a very successful businessman who always fights for what he wants and always gets what he wants, but is kind to his neighbors. You can't have it both ways. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What does someone who trusts have to do with someone who doesn't trust? If you have to fight for everything you think you need, you're not trusting in God's providence. Okay, so in this, you do not trust God's providence. Oh, but when you take care of your mother-in-law, then you believe in God's providence. Well, wait a second. How can you believe and not believe? I trust you, but I don't trust you. I trust you sometimes. <laughs> if you trust somebody sometimes, that means you don't trust them sometimes. If you don't trust them sometimes, it means you don't trust them. It means you don't believe. As Father Paul used to say in the classroom, there's no word for twilight in Hebrew. There's either day or night. And I know that people hate that because people love to talk about the gray area. Life is so gray. No, life isn't gray. You're unrighteous. Life is not gray. You're unrighteous and you're being given a shot here. It's called grace. And there's no middle ground. Are you going to accept it in thanksgiving and act upon it? Or are you going to just embrace the ambiguity of your mediocrity? And then when you are judged, say, well, I was basically a good person. It doesn't work that way. No, and Hosea, you know, sometimes she thinks that the good things come from Baal, in which case she follows Baal. Sometimes she thinks it comes from Yahweh, and during those times follows Yahweh. And Yahweh is saying, you're a harlot. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said which means that your immersion in Hosea is a good thing. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, even if they live in Corinth in a Roman city. It doesn't matter. No matter where you are, if you behave as my son or as my daughter, you are a member of my clan and of my tribe, and I am your sheikh. And just in case people think that they're incapable of putting idols in temples because you don't actually have stone statues in your house or something like that, the temple of God is the place where God resides. And that is the place where the teaching abides. And the idol is not just a thing. It's a thing that you ascribe a story to, that you ascribe a power to. I get what I want, I get what I need. What is that? A job, a promotion, respect, honor, money, car. What is it? Even wanting to be a good guy and needing that and needing people to think you're a good guy. All of these are idols. Why are they idols? They're idols not because you worship them. They're idols because you ascribe a story to them. You ascribe power to them. And Torah is teaching you that you are not a good guy. And Paul is trying to teach you when you try to be a good guy and follow the gospel, people are going to say, you're a hypocrite. 
You're a liar. You're a good guy. You're upstanding. You're a piece of work that we don't have any respect for. It's going to be all over the board. So you remain consistent no matter what because you only want the teaching in God's temple, not some other teaching, not some other power, because there's only one teaching and one power. And this is where God has to reside. And then he says, we are the temple. As a group, as a community, as a tribe, we are the temple, and we can only afford to have one teaching there. So you can't go and say, oh, by the way, I learned something interesting from this guru about how you can get whatever you want. Paul has to say, I'm sorry, that's not allowed here in our temple. This is an idol. You have to cleanse yourself of these idols, not in the Abrahamic way of going with a stick and smashing stone things. It means within your own heart, within your understanding, eliminating all these other powers and stories. Therefore... Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And this is so powerful coming from Paul for all of those fancy biblical scholars and theologians who wrap themselves in a knot trying to explain how Paul is arguing against the law, but is he against the law, but he's a Jew? Was he an upset Jew who didn't want to follow the law? Just relax, have a glass of wine, and listen. Paul is telling you the law is still applicable. But as you were just saying, are we talking about smashing statues like actual statues? Or are we interested in the statues in your head? Because you made the law of Moses into a statue that God himself in scripture had to smash. Because you didn't get the message a, that there's no twilight, there's no gray area, and more importantly, A prime, that you are unrighteous. It's your unrighteousness you have to accept, not the gray area that you have to embrace in your relativism. You need to accept that you are the harlot. Having understood that, and then having been reminded by Paul in chapter 6, that despite the fact you're a harlot, the grace was open to you, Paul opened the teaching to you. He opened his mind to you. Now you've been warned. Now you have a second chance. Do not touch what is unclean. Meaning don't engage in behaviors that harm your neighbor. As we heard in Acts in Ephesus school last week, Peter had a vision of unclean foods three times, denoting his betrayal of Christ three times, his rejection of the instruction to eat. But the instruction to eat isn't about food. That's the point in Acts. The instruction to eat or not to eat is about your neighbor. And if you take the instruction not to eat as an excuse to call your neighbor unclean, then you've missed the point and you're building a statue and you're an idolater because your neighbor was created by God for you to love. Now, if your neighbor rejects the Torah and behaves in an unclean fashion, that's not your problem. You shouldn't become like them, but you are still responsible to love them. And Bethany Saros, in her article on Ephesus School, talked about this with kids. You have to teach your kids not to behave in an unclean fashion without looking down their noses as those who choose to behave in a way that is contrary with Scripture. You have no right to judge them. That's why you can't build a morality out of Scripture and build a civil law out of Scripture, because then it ceases to be Scripture. 
then it's no different than a tyrannical progressive or a tyrannical conservative who wants to force everyone to agree with them. That's not how this works. You know, I say this with my children. Uh, when they were younger and they would watch the Disney Channel and then they would become sassy, I would say, look, my house is not the world of Disney where children talk like that to their parents. In the world of Disney, they can do whatever they want. But in my house, children do not speak to their parents that way. And it's going to stop right now. This is what I'm saying. And the reason why I do that is not, like you say, to be tyrannical. It's because you should not be sassy because when you're sassy, it shows you don't understand what your mother was doing all day long. She was working all day long. Then she comes home and she doesn't get to sit down because she's making dinner for you. And then you get crabby because you don't like the food that she's giving you or it's at the wrong time or it's the wrong temperature or it has onions in it. The proper attitude is gratitude. Your mother made you food. Say thank you to your mother. Do not be sassy. My mind is open to you, children. I'm going to explain to you why I choose not to live in the world of Disney and why I choose not to raise you in the world of Disney. Everything is open to you. I will give you the teaching. One time I was talking to one of my daughters and I said, look, I'm going to give you the words to say so that you can be happy. To your sister, say, do you want to do this? Or let's do this together. If you did that every single day of summer vacation, you would never want summer vacation to end because you and your sister would have such a wonderful time together. But instead, you choose to contradict her, not to submit to her, and have arguments all summer long. And you both go crazy. Why not just submit and use these words? And these words will give you life and happiness even if you don't get to do the thing that you want to do, even if your sister doesn't always appreciate it, you will have peace in your own heart. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So again, if you behave, no matter where you live, no matter what you choose to do, no matter what your profession, no matter who you hold fellowship with, if you choose to behave as someone from my tribe, from my clan, from my household, then you will be my sons and daughters. That's the bottom line. It's the classic message of scripture that allows you to do more than coexist. You know how people put these bumper stickers on their car that say coexist? I say that's lame. People put words like tolerance on their cars. That's another progressive value, tolerance. I say tolerance is lame. Scripture doesn't call you to coexist or to tolerate. Scripture calls you to love and to embrace. And to serve and to submit to. To submit to. It's not enough to say, oh, I have no trouble with black people. I have no trouble with Muslims. I have no trouble with Jews. That's not enough. You have to demonstrate that you accept the rule of your household, which is the love of neighbor, and act upon that rule and then God will welcome you because then he can see that you have been called out by his word to behave in a different way, to be separate in your deeds. The prodigal son can say, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. Now I'm going to go. And then when he comes back, the son understands the system. I'm no longer a son. Even though this is my father, I rejected him. I cannot be his son. And the grace was the father who said, yeah, you're my son. I'm declaring you my son. You can cut yourself off from the house 
but the father has the ultimate say on whether you're allowed in or not. So now the only power you have is whether you want to cut yourself off and leave the house, or if you want to be part of those whom God calls his people. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. You too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.